Hello, listeners, and welcome back to another episode of Cognitive Dissidents. As usual, I'm your host. I'm Jacob Shapiro. I'm a partner and the director of geopolitical analysis at Cognitive Investments. Joining me on the podcast is Alfonso Pecatiello. Uh, he is the CEO and founder of the Macro Compass. Uh, Alf tells you at the end of the episode where you can find him. Uh, thanks so much, Alf, for taking the time. We recorded this on Tuesday, May 23rd. It's going to come out about less than a week later, so it'll be a couple days old, but everything I think is still pretty relevant. Otherwise, listeners, I won't uh, get in your way with too much. Just if you have rated or reviewed the podcast, please do so. If you want to hear more about access to the CI Knowledge Platform or about the wealth management services that we provide, email me at jacob at cognitive.investments. Otherwise, cheers and see you out there. Cognitive Investments LLC is a registered investment advisor. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where Cognitive and its representatives are properly licensed or exempt from licensure. For additional information, please visit our website at www.cognitive.investments. The information provided is for educational and informational purposes only and does not constitute investment advice and it should not be relied on as such. It should not be considered a solicitation to buy or an offer to sell a security. It does not take into account any investor's particular investment objectives, strategies, tax status, or investment horizon. You should consult your attorney or tax advisor. Uh, thanks for reaching out and coming back on the podcast. I have to say, since we met a couple months ago and, and on the podcast, I mean, I'm enjoying your macro takes and everything else, but I really enjoy your angry tweets as an Italian about food. I'm here for more of that content. I want more espresso tweets and pizza tweets from you. It's really, really cathartic for me. Okay, so Jacob, let's uh, set a couple of rules as well, right? Since you triggered yes. me, I have to go for it. <laughs> so um, I'm from the south of Italy, close to the Amalfi Coast. And uh, there you're not going to kid around food and drinks traditions. You know, you've got to be serious about this stuff. Rule number one, cappuccino is only allowed until 11.30 in the morning. Um, that's like as lazy as a breakfast can go. So it's only for breakfast. It doesn't meet anything with lunch or dinner. Forget about it. Second rule, you don't break spaghetti or you don't cut them. I mean, mm -hmm. this is a crime in Italy. You cannot ask for a knife when they serve you spaghetti. Come on, guys. And uh, the third rule I want to come across with is, oh, yeah, this, I, get, I, I get asked about this a lot. Like, dude, why on pizza I can actually put some cooked sausage or some other stuff, but then you are selective with chicken or other meats? I don't know. These are the rules. I don't make the rules. Chicken doesn't go on pizza. Okay, I'm done. No, I, I hope I hope you'll drop many more rules in the course of this conversation. Podcast listeners, if you're doing any of those things, uh, just stop listening. I don't really want you to be listening Wait. if you break any of those rules. So that that's the kind of safe space that you're in here. Al. <laughs> um, before we kind of journey around the world, I guess we should talk about kind of the boring stuff that is top of the fold. We're recording here on Tuesday, May 23rd. This will probably come out by Monday, I think. I doubt there will be a debt ceiling um, sort of resolution by then. But does the debt ceiling matter to you? I confess I've been yawning about it. I'm sort of, you know, they'll they'll have a deal. If they don't have a deal, people will freak out, but then they'll eventually be a deal. Yeah. Do you think it actually matters from a macro perspective or how should we be thinking about it? Well, it all, it, it's one of these events where you have to think of risks in a, uh, in a metrics. So the way I define risk as a macro investor is I have the probability of an event times the magnitude or the severity of that, of that event. And look, this is the type of event that has a very low probability and an extremely high magnitude. It falls into mm -hmm. that basket. I mean, not reaching a, a debt ceiling limit and then not doing that for months on a row. It's a low, low probability event, high, high magnitude event. So that's how I think about it. And, um, you know, markets so far are looking at it like a effectively a 0% probability event. 
And on magnitude, I think you're right. They're going to freak out at the very last minute if, they, if you don't get a deal done. Um, will eventually, will we get a deal? Yes, we will eventually get a deal. But the Republicans have this incentive scheme, I think, Jacob here, to drag negotiations until the very last minute. And the other thing is unknown, un, unknown, sorry, unknown knowns. And in this case, it will be, when is the X date? Like we all know that the Treasury General account is drawing down and we are at uh, 50 billion. And then by Ju between June 1st and June 10th, the US might run out of money, something we need to define as well, I think, for the audience. What does it mean the US runs out of money? It's a self-imposed accounting rule, but okay. But nobody has any visibility on what happens between June 1st and June 10th until you literally see the data coming in between June 2nd and June 9th. June 12th, the US gets money in from the tax receipts, corporate tax receipts that come in. So it will refill the coffers of the government. But, you know, if I'm a Republican now, um, I mean, I don't endorse the strategy, but my, my best possible outcome is to drag negotiations until the very end and demand more and more and more and try to, you know, get the best out of it. So I think markets are a bit underappreciating the probability that we get closer to the X date without a deal. And mm -hmm. that means you have to go and look back at 2011. You know, that was the environment where we got close to August 1st without a deal. And, you know, markets panicked effectively. You had gold rallying 25% in three weeks. And I don't discard uh, that as a possibility. Mm -hmm. What I mean, you asked the question, so I'll just ask it back at you. What does it mean for the United States to run out of money? <laughs> yeah, it's, a, it's a very funny thing. So um, the government doesn't need money to spend money. The government prints the money that the private sector uses. So it's, it's a, it, the government is not a household. The government always has money in its own currency. It would be mm -hmm. very idiotic to run out of your own money being the government. The limitations to government spending is not not having the money, but it's if you spend it in an unproductive ways or you spend too much, so you do too much deficits, then you create excess demand and if resources and supply cannot expand to meet this demand, then you get inflation. That's the real limit to government spending, not not having the money. The government always has the money. The government prints the money. The government issues the money in its own currency, right? So the, the reason why we have these limitations is that the US has chosen, well, not only to comply with the global accounting rules, where effectively what you do is you um, you have to issue bonds to fund your deficits. That's how our accounting rules work. So the government injects money in the private sector and then has to borrow money through the bond market. So the US sticks to the accounting rules we use. And then on top of it says, yeah, but at some point I can't issue any more bonds because we have this thing called the debt limit, which is another self-imposed rule on top of it. And that's where we're hitting now, right? If the government wants to spend more than the taxes coming in. So he wants to inject money in the private sector. He needs to issue bonds. And well, the debt ceiling says you can't get any more debt uh, across above this arbitrary number that gets revised up every X years. And now we're exactly at that point. So the government then draws down the Treasury General account and says, okay, how much money do I have deposited at my bank? The government's bank is the Federal Reserve in this case. So they go at the Federal Reserve, they have this account, and they say, wow, there are 100 billion. Well, we'll spend it down because we need to fund our spending. And at some point, the Treasury General account doesn't have any more money. 
So that means the government runs out of money. In principle, the government could also spend new money. It creates money when it spends it, but then it can't borrow it from the bond market because there is this debt limit thing. So it's, it's really a political drama on top of two self-imposed rules. One is an accounting rule and one is a US-specific debt limit. I mean, this is macro, guys. It's markets. It's uh, made by humans. So we, we like sometimes to complicate our life. And that's where we are. Yeah, well, and I, I think this, I think you hit on the real center of gravity, which is inflation. And I mean, I think Andreas has been saying that inflation was, has already peaked and that it was going to start going down, if I have him right. Um, he was on the last time that you were on with us. Um, I, I've been in sort of the camp that inflation is stickier than most people are expecting, because from my vantage point, it's all about supply side. If you're reorienting supply chains all around the world, and if you're isolating China, the world's factory behind you know a great wall, if you will, like you're going to pay more for goods like energy and raw materials and all these other things are going to go up. I'm less sort of exposed to the macro side. I, I rely on the other folks at CI there. But wh- where are you in terms of inflation? Do you think we've peaked or do you think that there's actually room to run? I think the rate of change is what the central banks want to see, especially if I'm looking at the US specifically, you mm. have seen that, you know, these month on month core inflation numbers have been pointing downwards, uh, as in they're still growing month on month, but they're growing less than they were six months ago. So there is a deceleration. The, the change is in, in the positive direction, let's say for the central bank. I have a couple of worries about that. The first is um, well, before we go to the worries, let's talk about the other positive aspect. Housing inflation is going to slow down as well in the second half of the year. Why? Well, it's simple mathematics. It's simple calculations. Um, rent of shelter, so the housing component of CPI, which, by the way, is, is a very heavy component of the core CPI basket. So housing inflation is basically measured in the official statistics with the blend of old rental contract and new rental contract. So there is like a replacement effect that takes time. It takes quite some months, six to 12 months for the new rental contracts to get into the basket. The reason why I'm saying that is if you look at on the ground negotiated rents in the US, the rate of change has been declining really aggressively for now nine to 12 months. So rents have basically Mm -hmm. cooled off really aggressively. Only a portion of that cooling off is represented today in the official statistics, but as new as the replacement rate goes faster in favor of new rents, in the second half of the year, you're going to have this weaker rent inflation show up as well in official statistics. It's just a lead lag effect, uh, basically, because of calculation methodology. So you're going to have another tailwind for the disinflation story. Then you have the commodity side. I mean, commodities are down across the board about 20 30% this year. That helps the, the disinflation story too. Okay, I'm done with the positives now, Jacob. So (laughs) inflation has been slowing down on a rate of change basis, and there are reasons to believe it might slow down a bit more. A bit more. That's really the problem. Because Mm -hmm. by looking at the models I use to try and understand where we might land, we're looking at core inflation in the US, you know, in the three, three and a half percent area, annualized by year end. Guys, that's double the target of the central bank. And so that's where I tend to agree with you. I think more broadly, there are more structural reasons at this stage to believe that, you know, these are the the prevailing levels of inflation. And that will be like almost one and a half years after an impressive tightening in monetary policy. So you need to ask yourself if you're a central banker, is this enough? Like, have I done enough? And if I haven't, then I have a bad choice in front of me. 
either I need to tighten and raise interest rates even further, although I'm already seeing some cracks appearing, regional banks, the real estate market, commercial property prices, do I need to go a step more even, or can I just sit out here, wait and hope that I get a further disinflationary process? I think central banks will have to wait, um, and unfortunately, sorry, wait, will have to face this decision over the next few uh, few quarters. It's not going to be a very easy decision for them. I, I wish there was a third option there, which is central banker picks up the phone and calls other branches of government and says, well, what, what is the economic policy objective? What types of policies are you guys going to roll out? Maybe we could coordinate what we're going to do with the interest rates versus what you're going to do from a fiscal standpoint versus everything else. But central bankers, I don't know, they seem to have this bunker mentality where they have interest rates and they sort of have one focus and they think that they can control things. And for me, the the other thing with the United States, I mean, the left hand doesn't know what the right hand is doing. The Fed and the White House are going in completely opposite directions. They don't, they don't even seem aware that they're going in completely opposite directions. Yes, it's a very fair point. And to be honest, fiscal policy has been maybe still too expansionary, looking at where the labor market is. Uh, but the Federal Reserve can't do anything about that, to be honest. The only thing they can do is use this bit, this big hammer. I mean, they have a big hammer called interest rates, quantitative tightening. And that's all they can do, literally. So they can say, look, I mean, we're going to make risk-free rates at 5%. Whoa. So private borrowing rates for corporates, for households. So I'm talking about mortgage rates or corporate bond yields. No, we're going to send them to 7%, 8%. So we're going to make borrowing really expensive for the private sector compared to the recent history where mortgage rates were at 3%. And we are going to sit it out there and hope that you guys slow down. But if the government, don't, so if the left end of the right end basically says, well, you guys, uh, we're going to make some inflation adjustment to your tax brackets and we're going to throw some more money at you in the first quarter. Um, obviously, that doesn't help the Federal Reserve, but there's nothing they can do other than using this big hammer and try to slow down economic activity by making borrowing rates more prohibitive for the private sector. Yeah. Before we turn away from the United States and do more fun things around the world, I, I have to bring up the quote unquote banking crisis. Um, Chase Taylor from Pinecone Macro was on a couple of weeks ago, and he was singing a very, very pessimistic storm clouds on the horizon song. Um, I, again, have been more optimistic. Um, this is not investment advice, but I've been nibbling at regional bank stocks and things like that in the U.S. because they look pretty juicy to me. And I don't think we're going towards a 2008 moment. And Rob and I have talked about why on the podcast. Do you have a view yeah. sort of on the the banking issue? Because it does, you know, if if the Fed is going to keep rates high or even be forced to tighten for longer, like you can imagine that that's going to compress banks. But I don't know. I, I just don't see the crisis. And I'm also struck by the fact that you know, if you go back in time and read financial media two years ago, the articles are, oh, low interest rates have really been like, you know, hurting the margins for regional banks and things like that. How are they going to survive? It just feels yeah. like it's the same story with different headlines over time. So where are you at on the banking crisis? Very fun remark with low interest rates hurt banks, high interest rates hurt <laughs> banks. I mean, well, what's that? I mean, so uh, look, at the peak of the of the hysteria, I am proud enough to say that people on the Macro Compass, the, the firm that I run, got an article which was called Order, Please. And the article basically went just making a full analysis of banks. And people remember back then were obsessed about this health to maturity, unrealized bond losses. This was really the culprit of the problem. And that represents roughly 5 to 7% of an entire bank's balance sheet. 
So the article was, guys, I worked at a bank at very high levels, so there are a bazillion more things we need to take into account. Let's take them into account. Let's see how these banks are doing. The outcome of that was, well, there are some pretty poorly run banks in the US with very lax regulation around them, allowing them to act like cowboys, but all the others, (laughs) no, really. I mean, there was a statistics I still share today where people are pretty unaware of it, but if you take JP Morgan, and you say, Jacob, let's stress the entire JP Morgan's balance sheet for interest rate rising 200, 300 basis points, and then the curve flattening, which banks hate because of their business model, right? They borrow short, they lend long, they want the steep curve, not the flat curve. So I'm going to throw everything that is bad for a bank at JP Morgan. They do this to themselves, they stress test their capital for the entire balance sheet, right? What is the impact on the entire balance sheet of this negative interest rate um, stress test? The answer is JP Morgan loses about five to 7% of their entire capital. The entire capital of the bank goes down by five or 7%, which means 95% of the capital is still there intact, despite this very, very bad scenario that I'm trying to stress test the balance sheet against. Why? because they're professionals. They do interest rate hedging. They have derivatives hedging some of their positions. Not all banks act like Silicon Valley Bank, right? So that was one of the main reasons why I ended up with the same conclusion, which is, well, it seems a bit overblown here. At some point, we were pricing Armageddon Federal Reserve cuts, um, you know, 75, 100 basis points between now and year end. I'm like, whoa, what's happening? Like, is the the world gonna fall apart? So I did a bit the same and I went and I bought some financials basically. They rallied a bit, to be honest, they didn't go through the roof. And that brings me to the second part of the situation. In the 80s, when we got banking crisis, because of the higher interest rate environment to fight inflation, we got a similar situation. So we got bank losses due to higher interest rates. Well, back then, derivatives weren't really a thing, were they? So it was even harder to hedge. Mm -hmm. So you got these losses from higher interest rates. And then the thing subsidized a bit, right? In the second half of of that particular year. But it took two or three years after that to see the real losses. The real losses were credit losses. Was the asset quality of the loan books that these banks had. Why? Because higher interest rates were there to slow down the economy, to slow down inflation. And they ended up actually bringing the economy in a recession a couple of times in the 80s as well. With the recessions came credit deterioration, came loan losses. Those losses coming from credit quality, let's say, were by a multiple larger than the potential losses from higher interest rates. So the real Mm -hmm. problem is when you shift from liquidity-driven, higher interest rate-driven potential problems to the asset quality of banks' balance sheet, that's where the real problem lies. Where are we today? I think we're transitioning and we are very late cycle in the US, I believe. So obviously you are going to have some problems appearing in credit space. I mean, you see that in the commercial property market, the housing market is not doing particularly well. Median US house prices are 15% below their peak in September last year. I mean, we are experiencing a drawdown there. Banks are exposed to real estate. So the credit quality of their loan books is deteriorating. Also, net interest margins aren't great because if you want to keep depositors, you need to hike 
basically the levels of deposit rates you offer to them, which means you have to compress your margins. But it's a much slower moving train uh, than, you know, this this Armageddon fall of a cliff we were pricing two months ago. I don't, mm-hmm. I mean, ask me if I want to own bank stocks for the next 18 months, then the answer is no. Basically, that's what I'm saying. But it's going to take longer and it's a slow moving process um, that it's a credit de- credit deterioration uh, process. Yep, I, I can't uh, I can't agree more with that. So let's move on. Um, you know, we've talked about the United States here for a good um, 17, 18 minutes. I, I think we do have to spend a little bit of time talking about China. And I'll confess that I'm I'm a little frustrated with China as a geopolitical analyst because everything I've said over the past year or two has been right. I said the regulatory crackdown on the tech companies is not that big of a deal, despite the fact that Rob, who's on this podcast often, was worried about the property real estate bubble. I wasn't that worried about the real estate bubble. I thought China still, the PBOC, had enough to take care of everything if they wanted to. It was really a political question. And yet, despite that, um, and despite you know the reopening play and the thesis that oh China is going to be reopening and things like that, Chinese equities have performed incredibly badly over the past year or two, and I I can't help but think that that really just is politics. That China used to be the glittering land of the future of progress, and now it is the evil authoritarian communist state, and people want to go to India or they want to go to Brazil. Like it's China's not the emerging market that um, everybody thought it was. It's like, no shit, it's not the emerging market you thought it was. But all of those things that make China scary in some ways is also what made it a good place for foreign capital. They have rule of law. They have stability. When the, when the Chinese government decides, yeah, we want foreign investment here, there's going to be foreign investment. When they want to be the factory of the world, they're going to be the factory of the world. So um, I wonder from your perspective how you see it. Because for me, from a geopolitical perspective, I would have just said in the last year or two, I would have thought China was doing well in spite of the U.S.-China trade war. That's not what's actually being reflected. And I feel like some something is, is there's some disjuncture there between the actual fundamentals and how markets are pricing things. So help, Look, help me understand what's going on. Uh, I mean, the, the client base at the Macro Compass has roughly the same take. I mean, I have a lot of high-level hedge funds and family offices, so I, can, I get to talk to them as clients. So at the beginning of the year, we were discussing hey guys, I mean, uh, what do we do in emerging markets land? Like, what are you positioning at? Um, And I said, well, you know, I think China might deserve a little bit of an allocation because of this. No, 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 no. China? Are you kidding me? I can't do that. I'm like, what do you mean? No, no, I can't allocate. I mean, my mandate has moved from emerging markets to emerging markets ex-China. I'm like, okay. So basically, you had seen already this flow shift, I think, towards Latin America most in 2022 because of the carry that was there with higher interest rates in Brazil or in Mexico. You could already get 10%, 12% returns in investing in government bonds in Brazil or in Mexico because those domestic central banks were very aggressive in their hiking cycle way earlier than the Federal Reserve was. And China was deemed to be uninvestable because of crackdowns on the tech sector or, uh, you know, doubts about the rule of law or any other of these uh, concerns, right? I think that explains quite a lot, uh, Jacob, of the, um, the reason why, despite the reopening efforts, which actually even showed up in the data uh, a bit later in the first quarter, this was, I guess, the reason why Chinese stocks re- really didn't rally. There is no proper sponsorship from large real money allocators anymore. And the second story is, the recovery in China, especially in the data coming in April and May so far, has been, though, a bit bifurcated. I mean, the state-owned enterprises, the corporates that get, you know, the credit flows directly, effectively, from um, state-owned banks from China and other credit channels, then that the Chinese government can control, 
are getting this credit, are getting these lifelines, are getting this money. And they, you can see that in services PMI, for example, which mostly account for the state-owned corporates uh, when it comes to the service. And they've been doing great. But if you look at anything else that has to do with the global manufacturing cycle, if you look at how consumers are dealing with the, you know, traumatic uh, stress that came from the property deleveraging of 2022, they don't seem to be willing to participate very aggressively so far in the Chinese reopening. The data from the manufacturing and the consumer side is much more mixed. And to be honest, from a manufacturing perspective, China's caught in a very bad place because mm-hmm. the global manufacturing cycle is dead. I mean, it's not only China, but wherever else you look at manufacturing survey, manufacturing PMIs. I mean, in general, it's been a very, very bad trend for now six to nine months. So China is is just caught in the middle of it, but consumers are not so far really stepping up. And I think that has been really the thing that killed it. I mean, it already doesn't have much real money sponsorship. And then you see that this reopening data isn't 100% convincing so far, and then it just throw in the towel. I think that's that should you know be kind of the narrative around this. Yeah, not the sort of middle kingdom that China really wants to be. Do you think that that changes? Do you think that China becomes investable again? Or do you think that we really have crossed the Rubicon and that it's going to be emerging markets ex-China here for the, for the considerable future for macro investors? Look, it's, I've worked for a very large global bank. So I have a little bit of an insight how a large real money allocator thinks about these things. There are two components. The first is reputational risks for most of these pension funds and asset managers and banks is actually very, very large. So you don't want to be caught in the wrong labeled investment because of any ESG reasons or rule of law or anything like that. As long as nothing bad happens, you can stay in a in principle, bad investment from an ESG perspective, just to name ESG as one label that these Mm -hmm. corporations want to stick to. But when something bad happens, namely for China now, the crackdown of 2022 might be something labeled bad. Once that happens, it takes quite a lot of time before you can get back into it. Let Let me give you an example, Jacob. A lot of European banks were highly, highly exposed to European peripheral government debt um, before the European debt crisis of 2011. The reason was that basically people were looking for additional yield. And these Spanish government bonds, Italian and Greek, were offering a pickup of 100, 200 basis point over safer options, German, Dutch, Austrians. And so people said, well, why not? I mean, it's Europe. It's one happy place. So I can just buy Greek government (laughs) bond and I'm going to be fine. And then it was fine. There was a big sponsorship for years before the Eurozone debt crisis. And then it blew up. Now, after that, for the same sponsorship to come back into this peripheral government, government debt markets, it took at least five to six years. We had to go all the way back to 2017 with the European Central Bank saying, Ah, you know what? You're gonna get negative yields on your German government bonds, and then yep. this bank said, "Ah, you know what? Maybe I can buy some." Let's start from Spain, okay? It sounds a little bit safer than Italy and Greece. This is how it goes. It can take years. So I don't know if it's 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 forever uninvestable, but I know that the scars that come from reputational risks materializing can last quite a while in these institutional places. 
I love the example you used because I feel like if we're going to to the Eurozone, I mean, I feel like that cycle is coming around on Greece right now. Like you're starting to hear whispers of, oh, like Greece has a it they had a pro business election result. Like we can we can buy Greek bonds again, right? Like that's that's okay. I mean, as as an Italian, I actually wonder um, how do you how do you feel about um, Italy right now because it's one of our we, we're not a, we don't have a position there right now we've kind of been in and out but for us Italy is one of the most interesting it's one of the inter it's one of the um, largest benefactors of you know the EU next generation COVID nineteen recovery funds yeah. um, I saw that uh, what the the Italian government I think it was I forget which chamber it was but one chamber of the parliament said yeah we should we should really look at this nuclear power thing that's a huge Rubicon for for an Italian government to embrace nuclear power do, do you have any optimism about your own home country or uh, uh, you would still warn people to stay away tough question so to be honest the structural issues around Italy remain unresolved Jacob and that has to do with yeah well um where do I start <laughs> youth unemployment rate the massive difference in investments between the south and the north uh, corruption at different levels unfortunately ease of doing business, not particularly great, um, bureaucracy, low productivity levels. Okay, I'm going to stop here. I can go on for a while. So these, unfortunately, these structural problems haven't been really addressed a lot over the last 10 years. There have been some reforms here and there, but you know, doing very little, to be honest. So then you have to go back at cyclical growth uh, uh, boosters, right? It can be something from Europe. It can be a fiscal change. It can be a political change, anything like that. So what I see today, I think Italy has benefited and it's still benefiting from the, um, yeah, the European Union sponsored pandemic stimulus, basically. And that's a positive. When I look at something else, like, you know, the, the political situation, so far we have avoided the worst confrontation. It's actually not too bad from that perspective, because when the Meloni yeah. government was there, I mean, <laughs> there was quite some widespread and justified fear that they would go and be very confrontational with Europe. They haven't really. I mean, they are not particularly friendly, but they haven't been, they haven't been highly confrontational. So the way I see it is, you know, we're muddling through. If you're Italy right now, you're in a situation where you're muddling through, you haven't really resolved any structural problems from a cyclical perspective. The boost from the fiscal um, stimulus is still a bit there, but it is probably fading away a little bit at this point. It's you know mid-2023. This stimulus has been launched in 2021, 2020. So I see that like uh, structural problems haven't been resolved and the cyclical boost is kind of fading away so it's just a muddle through i'm not particularly excited yeah um where do you think the opportunities are in europe right now and i mm. i had a potential client come up to me a couple of weeks ago and said hey do you know how how i can buy ukrainian government bonds Love and i that. said to him like you really have stumped me because i don't know i'm gonna have to go do some research as to how and whether yeah. you can buy ukrainian government bonds because i think ukraine is the sexy answer there but talk to me about whether and where you see opportunity within europe right now I have to say that I have chosen an easier path to your, than your potential client, but I've looked at the same side of Europe. So I've moved east uh, for now three to four months already. So what I try to do is to look at places that are the mix of U Ukraine beta, let's say if I can call it like that. So positive mm -hmm. exposure to any positive development from Ukraine, high interest rates, possibly higher than in Europe and good growth prospects and reasonable valuations. This was the, the four principles I tried to apply. And there was one country that stood up a lot, which was Poland. So Poland has welcomed 
a bazillion Ukrainian immigrants. I don't know the exact million number. I'm going to call it a bazillion because in percentage of the local, of the domestic population, it was something Huge. like 10%. I mean, just a ridiculous big number. This Ukrainian, and, and then somebody has told me, Alf, do you, do you know how many refugee camps are there in Poland for these Ukrainian people? I mean, it's millions of people in a small country. Like, I don't know, there must be a lot. Do you know what the answer to this question is, Jacob? Zero. Yep. Zero. The Poles have managed to allocate and find new jobs to basically almost all these Ukrainian immigrants. So effectively, they've gotten a pretty big boost in terms of labor supply, of productivity, of highly skilled Ukrainians coming in. And they've been already plugged in the labor force in Poland. That helps both cyclical and structural growth prospects of a country that had already seen high real wage growth. I mean, wages in real terms in Poland had been growing five, six, seven percent a year for the last seven to eight years. Poles, in terms of net wealth, are getting closer and closer and closer to the median Italian. So you're talking about an uprising country that had one big negative in the past, which was still has, which is the confrontational government towards Europe. But we have elections in October, and you know mm-hmm. the opposition is is as Donald Tusk as their leader. And, you know, Tusk has been a, a very high key member of the European Union. So you're talking like the most European friendly guy you can ever try and get. And the polls show they're really close. So you're talking about a close tight election call where I think the base case is that the current anti-European uh, government will not, uh, is not going to get a majority again. So at, you know, the worst case scenario is a coalition where you you really need to water down your anti-European stance. The best case scenario is you get a pro-European friendly government in a place that has a good Ukrainian beta coming from the immigrants that have basically been seamlessly absorbed in the the labor um, market in Poland. You have good growth. You have interest rates at 6 and 75% in Poland. So you, if you invest there, you get the so-called good carry. I mean, you're investing in a place that has high risk-free interest rates, tight labor market, good growth prospects, both cyclically and structurally, and possibly even positive political tailwinds. And that has been a place where I've invested. And honestly, it's been great. I mean, if I look at both the currency and the equity markets, they've repriced really, really fast. The Polish equity market, even after the big rally this year, is still trading at, you know, uh, price earnings ratio of like six, seven, eight. I mean, reasonable valuations for a place where you have to take some risks. I really like Eastern Europe. Also, Czech Republic looks relatively good in my perspective. Um, Eastern Europe is, is a decent place to look at. Yeah, I mean, the thing about Poland, and if you look at polls, if you'll forgive the, all of my best puns are unintentional. I never mean to do that when I go into them. But um, if, if you look at polls, I mean, Poland is one of the countries in the European Union that has the most affection towards the European Union, which is why it's so strange that they've had a, an anti-EU government for as long as they have. Uh, that government has existed in spite of its position on EU because the Polish electorate loves the EU, wants to be closer with the EU. And so this anti-quote-unquote EU government really hasn't been able to do whatever it wants. So I, I sort of sympathize with you there. We also, we had um, Jacek Bartoszak on the podcast um, a couple months ago. And one of the things he said to me was he didn't know a family or a friend 
in Poland itself that didn't have a Ukrainian refugee staying with them. Now, number one, that tells you something about the generosity of the Polish spirit. Uh, it also tells you, though, that the reason there are no refugee camps is not because they've suddenly built the housing. It's because Poles are housing these Ukrainians themselves. They're still going to need the housing and they're going to need the housing because this is the last piece of the puzzle. When you look at what Ukrainian refugees have streamed across the border, I think it's 60, 65% the UN said is women and children and women and children who want to stay in Poland. So we're not talking about old men. We really are talking about sort of a demographic steroid shot in the arm that is fairly unprecedented, I think, at this point. So Europe, um, excuse me, Poland does have these um, these opportunities. The, the country I'm surprised, well, not surprised because it's much less developed and a little more risky, is is Romania on your screen? Because yes, Romania would have would have been the other one. And I've spent yeah. some time there myself and always been optimistic about it when I'm there and then trying to figure out how to how to actually get exposure is a lot harder. But you're, you're nodding hard. your head, yes, yeah, so I'll let you riff. <laughs> so yeah, my best friend is Romanian, so that helps. I've been there countless of times and it has similar dynamics to Poland when it comes to solid productivity, much better demographics than continental Europe, mm -hmm. real wage growth that is positive, interest rates that are higher than in Europe. I mean, it has all this kind of emerging market, typical tailwinds that you would expect. It, it has a bit, well, first of all, capital markets are much less developed than they are in yeah. Poland. That makes it much harder to access. And the second is, is to be honest, Poland has had this anti-European shift uh, at the last elections, but Romania has a much more long-standing structural problem, which is political corruption. That has mm -hmm. made it really complex um, to, let's say, discount. It's something I think that is always going to weigh on Romanian valuation is that you have really high and persistently high levels of corruption from a political perspective. And that is a pity. Because from a fundamental perspective, Romania would score pretty well. It is on my radar. I mean, if it becomes ultra cheap, then I'm going to try and, and, and dip my toes into it. But I think Poland or Czech Republic, which are places that are more developed from a capital market perspective, more Euro-friendly, uh, are, I think, an easier sell or sorry, an easier buy in this case, um, <laughs> if you're looking at emerging markets. Yeah, for sure. All right. Well, so sort of last section of our, our conversation here and listeners, we didn't prep this beforehand. So um, for the last 10 or 15 minutes, I, I wanted to ask you what, you know, we, we've talked about the big, the big economies. We've talked about the US, Europe, China. I wanted to know what do you think is if I if I forced you to pick one emerging market economy outside those big three that you would be interested in going long in for the next two to five years, or you can expand it to 10 years if you want, if you want to get fancy, what is that country for you? And then I'll, I'll tell you mine and we'll see if we, uh, if we land on the same corner or if we have a disagreement. Do I get a short list to choose from or it's... You, you can look the rules here. The, our rules are not like your rules about food. So if you want to add in some more countries, if you want to, you know, stretch the timeframes, it's okay. okay. That, that's, it's so all we, fine here. Just, just so please we, don't take out your cappuccino past 1130. You can have <laughs> so as many on the list. about Poland and I think Poland scores really high on my list. Um, the other emerging, ah, this is interesting. I want to shift now. And instead of telling you another emerging market, I'm going to tell you of a country that has been also massively underinvested in for the last two decades, mm -hmm. which is Japan. So that's been an interesting place for me to look at, Japanese equities in particular. Um, so what do I see there? I see a place that has deleveraged for 30 years. So what has happened in Japan is that the real estate bubble crash had basically damaged private sector balance sheets to an extent 
where you even saw that you know Japanese monetary policy authorities did everything they could to try and stimulate credit growth, and the private sector was like, no, dude, I don't care. I mean, what's the borrowing rate? 1%? I don't want it. Yeah. What do you mean? I'm giving you a mortgage rate of 1%. Yeah, I don't want it. Thank you very much. And the same actually came from offsetting fiscal deficits. I mean, Japan has printed fiscal deficits for two decades in a row, basically, 4 or 5% of GDP a year, so that they handed money to the private sector, and the private sector said, all right, I'm going to use it to pay back the remaining debt that I have over here. So they basically took it from one end and used it to destroy their existing credit on the other hand. So it was a basically a balance sheet recession. Uh, that's the best way to define it. Are we getting out of it? Yeah, I think the combination now looks very favorable, Jacob, because, I mean, Japan is seeing nominal growth pickup as the result of basically keeping monetary policy extremely accommodative now in the face of having services inflation at 4%, wage growth at 4%. They still have risk-free rates at zero and pin there effectively at 0%, long-dated interest rates. So monetary policy is basically, as inflation and nominal growth picks up and monetary policy remains unchanged, you're basically adding further fuel to the nominal growth fire as we speak. And Japan (laughs) is a very sticky economy. It's a sticky labor market. It takes a while to pick up, you know. I mean, the US was first, Europe acted with a lag together with the UK, and I think Japan just just acts with with a lag on top of that. And monetary policy authorities are just taking it easy. Even the new Bank of Japan governor doesn't seem in a rush to tighten monetary policy here. He just wants to really make sure that we get sustainable 2% inflation in Japan. I think in this process, of having monetary policy effectively ultra commodative on top of what it already was, if measured against a better growth environment, you're gonna get a real good upside in Japanese equities because these things trade at very reasonable valuations still. I mean, we're talking companies nobody wanted uh, because the economy was stagnant, real growth was stagnant, and the private sector was deleveraging. And so nobody seemed interested in investing in Japanese equities. And now all of a sudden they're like, what are you telling me? You're telling me they are they, they, they have a decent macro cycle with an ultra accommodative monetary policy. That's the typical framework where you want to be more aggressive on equity markets. And people are looking away from the US. I mean, that's why we talked about Poland or Romania or other places. It's because the US growth cycle is more mature at this stage. I think people broadly recognize that. They see clouds on the horizon. They look around. And not everybody can go all the way to Ukrainian bonds, like your potential client, or even Polish equities. They look closer to home. And Japan has very good, um, you know, corporate responsibility uh, kind of setup. It's very good rule of law. It's a a G5 country. And I think it's going to keep attracting some money in. I'm sorry, some of the emerging markets, from from an equity perspective, it almost is. We, we can call it a re-emerging economy, but yeah. um, I, I was mad when Warren Buffett went over there, and now everybody now the like it's the onslaught of Japan stories because the Oracle of Omaha was over there. I, we've been thinking about it for a while, but um, it's funny you mentioned Japan because I I was just this morning looking at um, so Japan announced in, after the G7 visit in Hiroshima that they were going to send um, you know vehicles to Ukraine for the war against Russia. And I thought that was a really interesting comparison because if you remember Germany, the month before Russia invaded, they decided to send Ukraine helmets. 
Like, thank you, Germany, for that. If you look, if you fast forward two years, though, you know, the German government two weeks ago said, okay, we are now going to give you weapons and tanks and we're going to build them in Ukraine with JVs that are set up between German defense. I mean, they've really come full circle there. And I've been, I I said to our team here this morning, I think Japan is going to lag Germany by about two years. So they're, they're sending the equivalent of helmets right now. But imagine that these Japanese defense companies who have had nothing to do for literally generations, suddenly there's a war on and they want to be closer to NATO and they want to do all these other things. I think that might be sort of an interesting spot. Let me tell you the country that I've been Mm -hmm. thinking about. And it's a country that I I was relatively bearish on for a long time. And my impulse is still to be bearish, but I'm I'm getting seduced by it. And it's, it's Indonesia. And when you put together the factors, so you've got you know, one of the only countries in the world with a really healthy looking demographic uh, chart. There are not many countries that are that big that have that many young people in them. Uh, yes, they're at the front line of climate change, but they are so exposed to climate change that they're going to have to change the way that their cities are literally structured. This Indonesian government wants to m- literally move the capital from Jakarta to somewhere else because Jakarta is sinking. So they're going to have to build a lot of things here in the next couple of years. Um, they are really opportunistic and they have a lot of raw materials. So just this week, you had an Indonesian company come up and say, we're going to double our exposure in fertilizers because Ukraine isn't sending out fertilizers and we think that we can go into that market. Another one, um, you know, Indonesia has a lot of nickel and they're not just selling their nickel, they're forcing Chinese companies and other companies that want to be there Build, we want you to vertically right. integrate. Build your factories here. You can have the nickel, but we want the expertise and we want the factories here in Indonesian land itself. And then last but not least, the geography is good. You're far enough away from the South China Sea and the Taiwan things, but you're still there on the Strait of Malacca, even if China surprises me and is going to become you know, this authoritarian monster that everybody thinks it is. You're still not going to get to Indonesia in the next 10 to 15 years. So for all those reasons, I'm starting to come around on, on Indonesia. I wonder... Do, T- tell me I'm crazy or tell me if, if, no, if you're now going to go talk to the correct. macro compass folks and say, we need to look at this a little closer. No, no, no. It's something that um, on the emerging market radar, if I have to list uh, where I stand, I think Eastern Europe gets a very high place. Latin America has been there for a while. I think there are decent opportunities there. You don't necessarily have to do Brazil. You can look at stuff like Peru, for example, but there are for the brave of heart you're looking at peru (laughs) yeah why not there are interesting pockets of value i think there but then the third angle would be definitely uh, what i call asia x china for the time being so japan is not an emerging market but it's a re-emerging market but within the asian complex you have stuff like malaysia or indonesia they look interesting for a couple for a couple of reasons i mean you mentioned the fact that we had a lot of these onshoring discussions. We discussed for three or four months, yeah, you know, uh, supply chains don't work anymore. So, uh, you know, all the large CEOs are going to decide to bring back all their manufacturing jobs in the US, in Germany. That was never going to happen. I mean, there is always a trade-off between uh, not risking the functioning of your supply chain and the cost of labor at home versus, uh, you know, in, in Vietnam or in China. So there is a trade-off. So then I got to think, okay, where, where are the places where people can uh, reshore their supply chain away from maybe China to another place that is maybe as cheap with less geopolitical risks around? And then you saw that, well, Indonesia, Malaysia, I think they score pretty well on these metrics, right? And both countries, Jacob, have been basically saying, yeah, you know, nice. You want to come here? Uh, fair enough. In case of in Indonesia, you want our commodities, but you got to build plants here. I found that very interesting, and I think it's of course a slow-moving 
trend, but it will bring capital flows, money, skills, labor, productivity, growth into these places. So you want to be exposed there. Also, they have this in demographics. So I like that Asian area, which is not still highly valued like India, for example, is for good reasons, potentially, but th these markets don't trade at, at valuations that are nearly as expensive as more mature Asian markets. And I think they deserve um, a closer look. Yeah. And, and in some ways, the juxtaposition between Malaysia and Indonesia is really interesting because Malaysia has done really well in a globalization world. And in some ways, Malaysia is positioned for globalization. Yeah. Indonesia is doing the unpopular thing. It's being very, very protectionist and has for years now restricting exports of raw materials, leaving a lot of money on the table in the short term, but doing this vertical integration thing in a way that Malaysia hasn't. Um, I know you have a hard stop, Alf. So let's stop there. Uh, tell the listeners where they can find more information about you or where to read your excellent insights. So guys, it's all on themacrocompass.com. That's the website to go and check out my work. What is my work, you might ask? Yeah, well, my work is breaking down the developments in global macro and markets in plain English. So one of the few advantages points I have is that I've been in the business. I've run money for a large bank and I've had the chance to you know, develop my skills, but also to make sure that I can break them down and communicate them in an understandable way, right? And on top of it, it's actionable. So it's not only blah, 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 but there are also macro ETF portfolios, tactical trades on top of it. So we try basically to put the money where the mouth is at the same time and break down global macro in plain English on themacrocompass.com. Great. Well, um, Alf, thanks for coming on the podcast. We hope that you'll, you'll come back on soon. And um, wh where, where are you based, Alf? I'm sorry, I haven't asked that. Well... That, uh, that's a very tricky question to answer. So I would say um, I would love to be based more in the Amalfi Coast, where I'm from. Uh, but unfortunately, <laughs> I managed money in the Netherlands, which meant that I basically have my wife here and my house here and social roots here, etc. So what I try to do is when the weather doesn't suck in the Netherlands, I'm in the Netherlands, which means not many months a year. And for the rest, I try to flee away to, um, to the Amalfi Coast. Well, maybe next time we can do this in Amsterdam or, or somewhere. Hopefully, I'd rather do it on the Amalfi Coast. Let's do an yes. episode overlooking the coast and drinking cappuccinos before 1130 in the morning. So before thanks so much for taking the time. <laughs> and we'll have you back on soon, my friend. Thank you so much for listening to the Cognitive Dissidents podcast brought to you by Cognitive Investments. If you are interested in learning more about Cognitive Investments, you can check us out online at cognitive.investments. That's cognitive.investments. Uh, you can also write to me directly if you want at jacob at cognitive.investments. Cheers, and we'll see you out there. The views expressed in this commentary are subject to change based on market and other conditions. This podcast may contain certain statements that may be deemed forward-looking statements. Please note that any such statements are not guarantees of any future performance, and actual results or developments may differ materially from those projected. Any projections, market outlooks, or estimates are based upon certain assumptions and should not be construed as indicative of actual events that will occur.